Easter to everybody. Can we do it one more time? He is risen. He is risen uh, it's nice. It's like the one time a year where a Presbyterian church responds at the volume they should to something. Right? Normally, you have to like have like six attempts before we get it out. Um, we're the, you know, we're the, if you're here, like the your church installs motion detectors in the sanctuary. You know, lights go out in the middle of service because there's not enough lifeblood going on. So this is the one time a year where we have the opportunity maybe to pour some lifeblood in. So if I, if I get a couple amens, or if halfway through I get a couple helping Jesuses because this isn't going according to the plan, that's totally fine too. Uh, feel free to express yourself. People won't think we're Pentecostal if we do it, I promise. Right? <laughs> I promise you, we're safe. Easter is this kind of singular, huge, significant, celebratory events for Christians, right? It's, it's bigger than anything else that we have throughout the year. It's bigger even than Christmas, if you can believe that. We seem to maybe make a bigger deal out of one or the other, depending on what church you're normally a, a part of. But Easter, hands down, with no arguments, no hold, bars hold, it, it holds this kind of incredibly high spot in the life of the church. It's the crescendo. It's the epic kind of conclusion to the narrative of the gospel story, right? We We've been walking for the last few weeks, uh, we've been walking through Genesis. I think we spent nine weeks or ten weeks in Genesis. Uh, I lose count sometimes. And we looked at the creation and how creation went sour within like the second week. right? And from that point on, everything is leading up to this redemptive moment where Christ is risen. Right? And we're not done because we live in a world of pain and all those kinds of things. And he will come again a second time in glory, not on a donkey. But, but we celebrate the resurrection as this unbelievable thing. And, and Jesus was betrayed, arrested, tortured, beaten publicly and shamed, and then was hung on a cross to willingly allow himself to be killed so that he would take the punishment and the weight of our sin for all who believe in him. Right? And after his death, these three days had passed, the tomb was rolled away, and Jesus rose. This is an incredible event. I think we, we read it kind of as a, we read it every year and we see it, but it's just monumental. I mean, imagine if we had someone who we've recently lost all of a sudden just raised from the dead. Like you go to put some flowers on their gravesite because it's Easter, and then they're not there. The tomb is just kind of moved, and they tap you on the shoulder and say, hey. I'm not trying to make light of that, but that, but that's a that would freak you out, Right? And so we, we have to understand that this was a historical event that really happened, and the disciples that experienced the risen Lord really experienced someone they saw die and be buried standing in front of them. Not a holograph. This isn't like Star Wars where Princess Leia shows up from R2-D2. This is the real Jesus in flesh, right? And even Thomas, who doubts him, says, like, I want to touch the side, and Jesus says, go for it. Like, I'm, I'm actually here. I'm really humanly here. This isn't a story that we enjoy that's pretty. This is a real historical event. And, and historically, in modern times of today and back then, this is something that people had a really hard time wrapping their minds around. 
It wasn't easy for people to accept the resurrection. And we think that, well, maybe back then when everybody could see Jesus and there were all these witnesses, everybody kind of believed it, and today we're just too far removed. But the reality is this. Today, there are many who doubt the resurrection. They, they don't understand. They don't, can't, can't get their minds around. They can't accept that our, our God, Jesus Christ, actually bodily rose. And in biblical times, we had those same issues. So if you think that in Paul's day, in the early church, somehow this was a universally accepted thing, think again. Here's some words from Paul as we get into the beginning of 1 Corinthians 15, where we're going to spend a lot of our time today. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the world I preach to you, unless you believe in vain, for I deliver it to you as of first importance, that I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Notice how he doesn't say they died. Then he appeared to James, then all of the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then I was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Paul is laying out here this, this kind of defense of, of the resurrection of Christ, even in biblical times. He's writing to the church in Corinth, and he's saying, look, Christ rose, and, and let me just take a, a brief moment to defend that. Um, there are hundreds of people who saw it. Like at one point, he appeared to 500 people, and, and most of them are still alive. Some of them have, have, have gone to sleep. Right, have passed on, but most of them are still here. So even during a time where there were eyewitnesses who witnessed Jesus die and then rise and saw him after his death, and you can go talk to those people because they were there. Even at this point, there's an issue in Corinth that people are not believing the resurrection of Jesus to the point where he has to start to make a case. He said, look, go talk to these people. Like it's not three folks somehow conspiring to make up this grand story. There are hundreds across all kinds of geographic and economic backgrounds. You can go talk to them. They were all there, and they'll tell you the same thing. Jesus is risen. Right? This is a, a pattern that we can even see to this day. We, we want to doubt the resurrection as, as humans. It's just part of the fallible nature. We don't like to accept things that are kind of outside of the natural realm of how things should go. And so that's a problem with many people. But here's the thing. There's a shocking amount of evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's a lot of evidence that would make a case for it. Many, even within atheist circles, there's a whole host of people that will make compelling cases for the, the validity and the evidence of the resurrection. One of the most famous ones is a, is a late atheist, he died in 2010, named uh, Anthony Flew. He was an English philosopher. And this is what he says in one of his books. This is an atheist. The evidence for the resurrection is better than for claimed miracles in any other religion. It's outstandingly different in quality and quantity from the evidence offered for the occurrence of most other supposedly miraculous events. Right? So you have atheists who are saying, look, I don't believe in Jesus. 
I can't buy it. But, man, the evidence is really compelling. Right. Now, sadly, you know, Sir Mr. Flew here never came around to, to know Jesus before he passed. He, he knew objectively that it seemed like it could be true, that there was evidence for it, but he never accepted it or embraced it himself. I want to encourage you to spend some time this week reading the gospel accounts of the resurrection. Because every single one of the four gospel writers is trying to scream from the top of their lungs a compelling account of evidence that Jesus is risen. He's risen indeed. Now, perhaps you're one who hasn't yet accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior. That's okay. We're not here to not here to hammer or judge, but I want to challenge you to, to, to believe. I want to challenge you to look at the evidence, to see the compelling nature of it, to look at history and its understanding, and, and, and to just trust that the Spirit will move in your heart, and, and you can know and understand, and I want to invite you to do that. And If you're here, maybe in person, or you're listening online, and you're, you're at that point where you haven't given your life to Christ, I want to just encourage you to, to not feel any kind of guilt or weight or feel weird around us, but just to keep thinking, to keep reading, to keep pursuing, to keep pressing in and leaning on. This church, regardless of what anyone might say, is a, a place that is safe and a gracious and loving community to come and explore and to think and to pray and to seek the Lord and see if he might not reveal himself to you. Right? And so I want to encourage you to do that. But this morning, I, 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 don't, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time proving the resurrection of Jesus. Right? That's, that's something that Paul gives, gives a little bit of lip service to here in the opening of Corinthians. But where I want to spend my time is what Paul talks about next. After this, when we get to verse 12. And while Paul explains and defends the resurrection, he doesn't dwell there. He moves on rather quickly, presuming that folks are just either going to accept or reject it. Right? It's like, look, here it is. Take it or leave it. But if you take it, let's talk about the thing that really matters. And that's the implications and the application. Right? So if Jesus did rise, what are the implications and applications of that? What does it mean for us that Jesus has risen? We come in here and we, we shout for joy from the top of our lungs and we, he is risen, he is risen indeed, and we look at the, the cross and we, we just are in joyful jubilance over this resurrection. But what does it actually mean for us? And there's a whole host of things, right? And so this morning, as we read our main text, I want to encourage us to stand together. We'll be in 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 34 together. And if you're new here, uh, we stand when we read our main passage for no uh, bizarre reason. Nothing happens to you if you don't. If you stay seated, lightning's not going to come from the sky. But we stand as just a, a reverence of God's word, understanding that I may say things to you today, but this is the word of the Lord speaking. This isn't me, right, talking. And so I would encourage you just to, to hear God's word as we read. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead... How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because he testified, we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, 
we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, and then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him, who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. And I say this to your shame. It's the word of the Lord. Have a seat. Paul here uses a, let's call it maybe a negative positive approach to talking about the implications of the resurrection. What I mean by that is he shows us why the resurrection matters by starting under the presumption of what would life be like if it didn't actually happen, right? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then what, right? And he's trying to show us, first of all, that we would lack in this world without Jesus having been risen. Here's the things that we're missing. And if it's, it's a pretty substantial list, right? Pretty much without the resurrection, everything completely falls apart, right? Not just uh, we, we somehow are where we were right before he was risen, but everything completely falls apart. There's a whole list of things that just fall by the wayside in the everyday life, not just of the Christian, but the non-Christian. And then in verse 20, he pivots. He says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, right? The second half then builds on this implication from a positive standpoint. So he says, look, if he hadn't, all these things would be going on. Thank God that's not the way things are, because in fact... He has been raised, and so this is what we live into. And So let's take a deeper look at these implications, and there's six that we're going to look at this morning. Number one, the resurrection demonstrates that this world, this physical world that we currently live in, matters. There's, a, there's three basic ways of kind of looking at the world um, as people, not just as Christians, but as people. Three basic ones. The first is this. It's a naturalist kind of feudalist way, right, of looking at the world. And, and what we mean by that is um, the people that don't believe there's anything beyond it. Right? The natural world is all there is. Science, science, science. Big bang. We are, we're just you know, carbon. When we die, we go back into the dirt. And this life is all there is. You live, you die, you're gone. And everything that you experience in this life is, is natural and random. Even the things that you somehow supernaturally can't seem to explain, that's because science hasn't advanced enough to understand it yet. Everything that we see is just, it's just what it is. There's nothing more to life. Right? 
That's the first one. The second one is what we call maybe mysticism or Gnosticism. It's this idea that there's a separation between the physical reality and the spiritual reality of things. Right? So when we die, our, our soul, somehow something happens to it, but we don't know what it is. There's a plane that is beyond the physical reality. Right? A lot of Eastern religion kind of falls into this trend. Right? And so you, just, you need to meditate enough. You need to be constantly meditating or devoting yourself in such a way that you are kind of trying to, with your mind to almost to, to flee the physical reality. Right? Physical bad, spiritual good. It's the separative kind of way of looking at it. So everything's natural. There is no spiritual. The two are separate. One is bad and one is good. And then there's the, what we call the holistic way of looking at things. And that would be the biblical worldview. And that's that Jesus' bodily resurrection affirms and proves that the physical world matters. Why? Because Jesus didn't rise spiritually. His soul didn't float up to heaven and kind of wobble around next to God in the sky like a hologram. He bodily, actually, physically rose. Right? He died. He took the sin and then he rose. And what that tells us is that our physical reality matters. That's why we care about this creation. That's why it matters that we care for it, that we can conservate, that we worry about the environment. And I'm not talking about a political way of looking at the environment, but just generally I think we can all agree that it, it matters that we care about the planet on which we live. Because it's part of what God made, right? This physical world isn't just a stopgap. It's a real place that is good inherently if sin wasn't part of the equation. And it means that someday our reality isn't just that we die and float around in heaven, but that our bodies will be raised just like Jesus was raised. Right? If you look at Revelation, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. When he comes again, you and I aren't going to be floating around in heaven with wings like the cartoons. We're going to be right here in this world, but with no sin, with no death, with no environmental issues, with no disease, with, with none of those things, with no strife or anguish. All of that stuff will be part of the past, but the physical reality is here and it matters. And Jesus' resurrection clearly sends a message that we can't just say, body bad, spirit good. But body and spirit, bad right now. Sin will conquer and deal with that. Right? When, when Christ comes back, that'll get wrecked and restored. And then all of it is good collectively again. Right? That's number one. The physical realities matter. Number two, the resurrection demonstrates to us that the church matters. Verse 14, if Christ has been raised, then our preaching, if Christ hasn't been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Paul's essentially saying, look, if the resurrection didn't happen, all of us apostles, disciples, yeah, we're full of it. Like, you shouldn't be listening to us. My job becomes pointless if Christ hasn't been raised. Like, you've been coming and listening to, like, a snake oil salesman for the past however many years you've been here, right? And pastors before me. Preaching is entirely futile if it's not for the resurrection. The gathering of God's people is entirely futile. Without Christ risen, it makes no sense that you come here, that you sing, that you listen. And it really makes no sense that you would commit into this place in the body with your time, your talent, or your treasure. Right? If Jesus didn't bodily rise from the dead, you should cut your giving off right now. Don't, don't actually do that. 
please. The lights you know, need to be kept on and replaced every once in a while and all that kind of good stuff. But, but that's really it. Like All of this that we're doing here, like if you think about it, outside of the realm of the risen Christ, this is weird. Right? I'm not that compelling. Like, why would you just come and listen to me talk about stuff? Right? Why would you come listen to us sing and participate and sing with us as a congregation? Singing congregationally outside of the gospel is a really weird thing to do. Right? Like, if a non-Christian walks in here, why are we all just singing to, like, a man in the sky? It's the resurrection that makes the church make sense and demonstrate that it matters. It's also, number three, as an aside, it's, it's what makes our faith matter. Right? In the same verse, he nullifies not just the gospel preaching, but the faith itself. He says, your faith, if not for the resurrection, is completely dead. Without a risen Christ, what's the point of having a personal faith life? Why believe in anything? There's nothing to have hope in, nothing to believe in, nothing to have faith in. That's number three. Number four, the resurrection and this is, hang with me, but this is a big one. The resurrection stops all of us from experiencing an existential crisis. What do I mean by that? This relates to kind of whether the world matters, but here's the thing. Without a hope of the resurrection, we are left in a really impossible conundrum as humanity, right? Because it means that this world is all there is. And if that's the case, in some ways this world matters less than if God cares for it, but in some ways the world matters more, because it's all we have. Right? If there's nothing after this, then this world is everything. And here's the thing, less in the sense that it's fleeting and God doesn't intend to preserve it, and it's more because if there's no resurrection, literally all you and I have is this world. And this creates a huge crisis of worldview that a lot of people that don't walk with Jesus have, but don't even realize they have. Follow me. This life is all you have. That means that, number one, you have to protect that life at all costs. You're terrified of the end of this life. Because when it ends, that's it. Right? And so your instinct as someone who doesn't have a hope in the future, a hope in what happens after death, is to preserve life at all costs. Right? You should really just be living in a bubble to make sure nothing bad happens to you and you can make it as long as possible, right? You want to get to 100 because once it's done, it's done. But at the same time, this life is all there is. And so you want to live it to the fullest. You want to experience everything the world has to offer. And so you're simultaneously trying to experience very little because you're worried about the dangers of the world and you want to protect yourself. But at the same time, you're wanting to go out and experience, right? Paul in verse 32 says that if, if the dead are not raised, let's eat, drink, and be merry. But quite frankly, going out there and eating, drinking, and being merry is really terrifying because it's a dangerous world out there. It means that you'll helicopter parent your kids at every turn because, God forbid, something could happen to them. This life is all they have. Do you see the, the weirdness? These are diametrically opposed ideas, and that creates a crisis in our being. Stephen Um, who wrote a commentary on Corinthians, says this, they want everything in the world, but everything in the world is a potential threat to their survival. If this is all there is, then they have to have it all and avoid it all at all costs. That creates a crisis. And if you're wondering why a whole lot of the world is walking through life 
with, I'm not talking about like clinical depression, but if there's this, this, this kind of idea of what's, what is my life all about? What is my purpose? How do I live? I, I want to be safe, but I want to live life to the fullest, but I don't want to. And there's this confusion in you. It's because outside of the resurrection of Christ, there's nothing else. It's going to mess with your head, right? The resurrection solves this crisis. Paul in verse 26, he says, The last enemy to be destroyed is death. The resurrection destroys both extremes of this crisis here. Number one, we are free to focus less on preservation because death is beaten, right? For followers of Christ, all death is is new life, right? If you and I all walk out of here and collectively get hit by a bus, one second after that bus hits, we're with Jesus. And every one of us in this room is happier than we were five seconds earlier. Death cannot touch us. And so it frees us, the gospel does, from preservation. Now, do we want to protect our life still? Yes. Like, none of us are just out there trying to die, right? But, but if we do, it's, it doesn't matter. It's not the end. As a matter of fact, it's the beginning of something better. Right? And so we can walk through life without fear, fear of even death, because we have the preservation of us taken care of. And number two, we're free from stuffing all of our life experience into this earth because there's eternity. You don't have to get all this world has to offer before you go and check out. Because this life on this earth is actually just a blip of the eternity that you'll spend with your Savior. And so if you experience nothing in this world, if you're poor, if you're in pain, if your life is a mess, if you're just trying to bide your time until you can go be with Jesus, guess what? There, there is an eternity coming. And there's going to be a time 10,000 years from now that you look back on this earthly life and go, yeah, it was a snap of a finger. It seems like so long now. Right? So there's this freedom that comes. Christian faith gives people what they actually want from this world, the ability to enjoy life to the fullest without the fear that accompanies it. So that's number four. Number five, the resurrection matters because it makes sense of morality and goodness. If there is no resurrection, and this life is all there is, moral behavior makes no sense. Why, why am I behaving? Why am I restraining myself from whatever selfish thoughts and desires that I might want to express or act out? Why would I do anything that is morally good or upholding of other people? What, out of the kindness of my heart? I don't have time for that. This world is all there is. No, I'm going to get by and get mine. Right? Like the command not to murder makes no sense if this world is all there is. Because what makes sense if this world is all there is is if I can get ahead by killing you, good luck, buddy. We can argue about this until we're red in the face, but morality itself, any kind of goodness, comes out of the creator God, the one who made the universe and created it good. When you have people in your work and in your school and friends that are not followers of Jesus that do things that are good things, they do that because God created that within them, and the gospel and common grace allows for that to happen. And they don't even know it. I can tell you right now, if I thought this world was all there is, your pastor would be a horrifically immoral person. I'd have no motivation not to be. No, but the fact is, Christ did rise. We should be decent human beings. We should order our lives after the one who creates and saves us because he's risen from the dead 
and he saves us out of our sin. And he gives us a new life and a new purpose and a new way of living together as God's people. Right? And so what the resurrection does is it actually gives birth to a grounds, to a reason for being moral at all. If you're not if friends of yours that don't follow the Lord, do good things, you can say, you know why you do that. Don't actually do that. Unless you want to stir up some trouble. And then finally, number six. The resurrection matters. Because, my friends, it's our only source of hope. It's our only source of hope. This year, over the past year and even to come, man, we've done a lot of funerals as a church, haven't we? And when we do those, um, I talked about this at the funeral just a few weeks ago. But when we do that, the service that we hold in the sanctuary is what we call a celebration of the resurrection and a thanksgiving for the life of whoever. And, and when we gather for a funeral in this place for someone who has walked with Christ, who is in him, there's a mourning and a sadness, but there's also a joy and a hope. And really, the only mourning and sadness at a funeral of someone who loves who love Jesus, is this, that we miss them. We're not mourning for them. Right? That's why I always tell people, when you, when you have a funeral service, it's not about the person who's, who's passed on. It's about those of us who are left. There's a sadness because we miss them. But there's a hope because they, right now, don't miss us. Because they're with Jesus in eternity. It creates a hope. The resurrection is what brings hope and purpose to this world. Whenever we have any kind of celebration of life or whenever we lose someone, we can walk in the hope of understanding that there is something beyond that. And we ourselves, when we live in a a world that continuously batters us with pain and suffering and disease and abuse and illness and all the things that are part of our realities in the world that you go in the morning when you wake up, you just can't even function. You can know that it's a temporary thing. There is a hope. You will one day breathe your last, and as Christ died, you will follow him in that pattern, and then you will also be raised along with him. And when that happens, whatever experience of pain you have right now, you're not even going to remember. Can you even imagine functioning in a way where every pain, every strife, every struggle that you experience right now Anything, all of those things, both the things in your own mind and the things that are being done to you and happening to you. Can you even imagine those just being completely obliterated off the face of the earth? No, but that's the reality of the gospel, of the resurrection. And all of that is possible for one reason and one reason only, and that's because Jesus is risen. Here again these words from Paul. For, by, for as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as an Adam all die... So also in Christ, all shall be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, and then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. My friends, as pastor and author Tim Keller puts it, the resurrection is the hinge upon which the story of the world pivots. Everything changes because Christ is risen. Every single facet of the world that you and I live in is affected, shaped, transformed by the resurrection of Jesus. It changes the way we approach the world. It changes the way we approach our life and those around us. It changes the way we think about our possessions and our time. It creates freedom from fear. It creates hope and joy in the midst of death and pain. And the resurrection turned the world completely upside down and changed everything. If we trust 
in our own lives and the world's promises, Paul tells us that just like Adam, it brings death. You won't get from this world what you're asking from it. You can try. I can tell you, man, I spent years trying to get from this world what I wanted out of it, and it just doesn't measure up. It will look appealing, and it will leave you empty no matter how hard you push into it. But if you put your faith in Christ, if you trust him, if you follow him, my hope and prayer will be that he will, he will be Lord of your life, and you can breathe easy and find rest for your souls. This Easter, I pray that you would walk in the light of this beautiful day, and it is a beautiful day, my friends. You can't always say that in Northeast Ohio, right? I think next year Easter is in March, so it, we just already know it's not going to be a beautiful day next year. So enjoy it. <clears throat> right? Anything before April 1st, like forget, forget about it. We'll have half the people here next year because it will be a snowstorm. Right? But this year, walk outside into the sun, into the newness, into the, the beautiful restoring of creation at springtime, and just understand in this beautiful day the love and the care of Jesus Christ. Let it wash over you. This Jesus who came to this world to give his life for your sins and then to conquer death by rising from it once and for all. And as we follow him in death, so we will follow him in life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Lord, we're so grateful that you are the risen Christ. We're grateful that you save us, that as you rose, we also rise. We're grateful for the mercy that comes as part of the resurrection. We're grateful for the sacrifice that you made. We're grateful, and we love you. Lord, we pray for those who we know that don't know you. And we pray that we might be able to, to share the love and the gospel of Christ with them in a way that is compelling, not because we want to have converts, not because we somehow want to grow our church. We don't care if they come here. We just hope that they get to know you because not as people that think we're better than them, but as people who, man, we were hungry and we found where the bread is. So we just pray that people might come to your feet to find bread and living water that never runs out because you have risen. Death, where is your sting? We love you and we praise you. And all his people said,